Covenant Life Church. It is great to be with you. My name is Sean Cordell, and I am so honored uh, to be able to be here with you today. I've actually been here several times in Tampa, spoken at a few Treasure in Christ Together network events, but never actually had the privilege to worship with you on a Sunday morning. So it is truly a joy. Um, I miss my family. I wanted them to be here with me. I have a wife. We've been married 24 years, um, 25 next year. So hallelujah, praise the Lord. And I got four kids. I got two in college, one as a freshman in high school and one as just entering into middle school. So this is a picture of my crew, little bulldog Josie at the bottom there. And, uh, but that's my sweet family. They wish they could be here um, and worship with you as well, but uh, they are back at Treasuring Christ Church, which is in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it has just been a privilege to be a part of this family of churches, this Treasuring Christ Together Network. Uh, one of your members had a wedding in Raleigh, and next thing I know, coming to Treasuring Christ Church, we like had two rows filled up with Covenant Life people, and uh, got to go out to eat with them after the fact, and that was amazing, and then um, to your loss and our gain, uh, the Magros, Matthew and Risa Magro with little Nora and Miles, uh, they have just recently, two weeks ago, joined our church as they have moved to Raleigh from here to, uh, from Tampa. And whenever somebody tells me they're headed to Tampa, Florida, the first thing I say is, you need to go to Covenant Life Church. You got to go there. And so I just am so thankful to God for you as a people, even though you don't know me, um, I have heard so much uh, through your leaders, and I just want to say before the Lord that I love your leadership here. They are humble. They love Jesus. There is a genuine sense of love for you, and I know that their face and their eyes are towards Christ. And so if you are a visitor here and you're contemplating joining a church body, I just encourage you, jump all in right here. And invest your life here in loving on this church family. And those of you who are here, just know you're a part of a wonderful, healthy, imperfect, as we all are, family of God. And so I'm just thankful to God for uh, the privilege to be a part of this together. And so I invite you, uh, as you've already heard the scriptures, uh, to turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 13. And as a church at Treasure in Christ Church, we're actually preaching through the book of Romans. We're not even here yet. We've been at Romans for about a year and a half. We're in Romans chapter 13. One of our other pastors are starting uh, chapter 13 today in Raleigh. But in preparation for that, as you look at Romans 15, I just want to give you the on-ramp of kind of what leads us here. Because we're just going to look at one verse and I, I don't just like landing in on a verse without understanding exactly what's in and around it. Paul has one major passion as he's looking through the entirety of the book of Romans is that when somebody wants to be reconciled with God, when somebody wants and they know that they need something beyond themselves for satisfaction and hope, Paul waves the flag that says, your self-effort will not get you there. It will actually lead you in the opposite direction. Your search for satisfaction apart from God is a vain pursuit. And he just over and over says, you can be made right with the living God of the universe by trusting not in yourself, but in the God who raises the dead. And that's what he did. He sent his only son to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserved. He was raised three days later so that we would have a hope 
a hope of eternal life, and a hope that in every single moment of every single day, he will be with us. How do you get that hope? It's by trusting, not in your works, but by faith alone. You can be justified. That's how Paul talks. You can be made right, declared not guilty. And so when we come to this passage right here, there's these mountains of promises in Romans chapter 8. If that God is for us, then anybody know how to finish it? Who can be against us? That's right. If he is for us, you put all your chips in and saying, he alone is my hope. If he's for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on to say, if he didn't spare his only son but gave him over for us all, how will he not also in Christ graciously give us all things? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Who is the us? It's not just the Jews. The context here is that mystery of mysteries, this gospel goes out to all peoples all over the globe. Anyone who trusts in him can be found to be made right with God and to have hope. And that's what lands us in Romans 15 verse 13. I just want to say the verse over you and pray and then we're going to dive right in. But here's what Paul says in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, those words are things that feel sometimes so distant and so impossible. But those words are your words. And we lean on you alone to supply what we cannot supply in and of ourselves. And so, Father, we just say right now, show us your son. Give us eyes to see Jesus. I pray that today you would give the discouraged hope. You'd pour courage into their hearts. You'd give the downcast restoration. You would grant the frustrated and the fearful peace. God, you would be near to the struggling and the discontent, and you would pour into their hearts joy. Father, I pray that by your unique mercies, what you would do is this sermon would sit in some ways as a a pebble in the shoe that we just can't seem to get over saying, God, you can be trusted. But God, I also pray that it's, it's also, also this mysterious sense of comfort that you can be trusted. And so, Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with a sense of, that we can trust you not just with Sundays, but with every second of every day. Give us hope in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If I say the word hope, there's a sense that it brings a little smile to your face, I think. I want hope. There's a sense of like, if you have hope, you have a sense of optimism. Hope is a good thing, I think we would say. I want hope. And many times we know hope is a good thing because we feel the opposite so often. I feel 
hopeless, right? I feel discouraged. I feel downcast. I feel fearful or frustrated. Those experiences we don't want. And it's those experiences that lead us to be hopeless. And so when I say hope, you're like, yeah, I'd rather have that. I'd like, I'd like the hope version, please. Not the discouragement one. And I'm so thankful to be in this worship gathering with you today. But I know my own heart. I know my family's heart. I know the hearts of many of my people at Treasuring Christ Church. And so I'm imagining your heart's a little bit like mine. Where although you are here, it doesn't mean that you're not okay. It doesn't mean that you aren't hurting. Some of you, you're here. And you actually feel joyful. You feel thankful. You actually have wind in your sails. You feel a sense of hope. And that is a precious gift from God. But some of you, that's not how you would describe it. And those of you who feel maybe hopeful today, you haven't always felt that way. Some of you are weary. You're overwhelmed by life. You feel like a thousand things are coming at you and you don't know how to wade through it. The prospect of the future is just so daunting. You're tempted to bury your head in the sand. How would you describe those feelings? Discouragement. Hopeless. Despair. You might even be cynical. Struggling to trust God at anything. Leery of people. Hope feels drained out. And then we collide with Romans 15, 13. It almost feels like a fairy tale. Right? Do you not feel the gap between how you feel moment by moment, sometimes many times throughout a day, throughout a week, and then you hear, may the God of hope fill you, not like just a little bit, like with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can abound, not just survive, but thrive in hope. Sometimes it feels like two different worlds. This is the promise. This is the reality. And the gap is like Grand Canyon size. How do we, how do we bridge the gap? How, how does this promise become a reality in my life? It totally feels like a pipe dream. And I'm here to tell you it's not. I too have that gap in my experience versus the promises. And the hope here, the hope here is that through this time that we have just to meditate on this one verse, that God might in his kindness by the power of the Holy Spirit, that that gap would get smaller and smaller. And more often in our lives, we might experience hope. And the fruit of hope, which is joy and peace. What bridges the gap? The word is trust. I just recently drove from Raleigh, North Carolina to uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, which is actually where I grew up. Go Vols, any of the Tennessee Vols fans out there. Um, Just drove to Knoxville, Tennessee, and as I drive there, it's it's really like one direction. Like, get on I-40 and don't stop till you hit Knoxville. So, but when you drive through that direction, you actually go through the winding Smoky Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains. You go through Asheville, and it turns like this. Now, here's what I experience. My family, we've driven this a ton of times. 
And so as I'm driving, my family trusts me as I'm driving. They play games on their phone. They watch movies. They joke. They just eat snacks. They just enjoy the moment. They're just trusting. And because they trust, they don't have a worry that we're going to get there until, until you get on the winding roads near Asheville and you get these semi-trucks that just uniquely delight to do this right beside you. You can't see in either direction. And then all of a sudden I hear the joking slow down. I see their faces look up and, and I can see panic because they feel like they can literally reach out and touch the truck next to me. And all of a sudden trust has eroded and therefore their tranquil souls have turned into anxiety. We can get shorter with each other in those moments and you can just tell it. It's like you can set your clock by it. It's because we've lost trust. This is what happens when circumstances unsettle us. They hem us in. And our trust begins to erode. Those are the semi-trucks of the human experience. And sometimes... You actually driving on the road and you see a wreck in front of you. It means like when we're walking through our experiences, some of the greatest fears actually get realized. Some of the suffering that we fear actually happens to us. We're afraid that we're never going to get to our destination. Feels like evil has won and our trust erodes. And when trust erodes, the clouds of despair get thicker, the sun feels like it's further away, hope diminishes, joy and peace seem to subside. Trusting seems hard. And yet Paul is encouraging us in Romans 15 to look at the God of hope and that the gospel of Jesus Christ matters in the everyday in such a way that hope actually can rise in the heart even when the circumstances seem to be choking us out. Look at Romans 15 with me and focus on two words. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. What are the next two words? In believing. In believing. It's a present tense verb and it means it's not trust and then you're done. It is joy and peace can well up in the heart. Hope can abound through the continuation of trusting him in the everyday. And so how do we learn to trust him moment by moment, day by day? What has really helped me in this battle is spatial images. What I mean by spatial images is, is the contemplation of what's been behind me or what's in front of me or what's beside me or what's within me. And Paul does this all throughout the book of Romans, and I think it collides right here in Romans 15. How in the world do we preach the good news of Jesus to our hearts day by day? How do we learn to grow in trusting him and to take all the real, tangible, tragic, messy, gross moments of every day and lay it before Jesus constantly so that he builds up our faith and we say, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. How does that happen? I think Paul presses us to consider these spatial images as a means of preaching the good news of Jesus to our hearts so that trust abounds. What are those? 
I think Paul would commend us to trust God's one steadfast love because he's gone before us on the cross. I think he would also advocate that we trust God's providence. That means the fact he goes in front of us and he holds our future. I think he would encourage us to trust his presence, which means he's right here with us and we will never face anything alone. And I think he would encourage us to trust, to trust his supply, which means he's not only beside us, he's within all of his children, giving them everything that they need. And so I just want to run through these things briefly that God might help us to trust him and that we might abound in hope and watch joy and peace rise in the heart more often. So here, number one, Paul is inviting us to trust God's steadfast love. Trust God's steadfast love. The spatial image is he has gone before us, which means look to the past, in order to help build our faith in the present. Where do I get this? Well, since you haven't been swimming in Romans like I have been, you might miss the context, but Romans chapter 15, verse 8, says this. For I tell you that Jesus Christ, he became a servant to the circumcised, that is the Jews, for this reason. To show God's what? Truthfulness. Jesus came to say God can be trusted. Jesus came to show that God can be trusted. Look at what else it says. In order to confirm the promises given to the fathers, the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles, all the peoples might glorify God for his mercy. And then he continues on talking about the people of God praising him and finding hope in him. Paul is trying to anchor this idea that we can have hope in the fact that he did what he said he was going to do. He sent his son to die in our place demonstrate God's trustworthiness. What else does the cross demonstrate? <laughs> Romans 5, 8. For God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The cross screams, God can be trusted and he loves you. God can be trusted, that means he's steadfast and the cross screams, he loves you. The cross is the picture of steadfast love. What gets us to Romans 15, 13 is a look at the cross that says he can be trusted for his steadfast. It doesn't give up. It doesn't diminish. His love for you right now is as at its apex as it was on Calvary. Calvary, the cross, was not like the height of his love, and then it just gets a little lower over time. His love for you is that robust, that strong, that led him to crush his son on Calvary. He loves you, and his love is steadfast. 
And so what Paul is telling us to look at with our spiritual eyes is the trustworthy love of Jesus on the cross. I've been reading a book called Deeper by Dane Ortland. Highly recommend it. One of the best books on growing in godliness that I've ever read. Because of its beautiful matching of not only giving commands, but always saying you will always have the the love of God for you as you do these commands. Many times when I was growing up, I would read these books on how to grow in Christ, and they would say, God loves you, and now here's all the things you got to do for him, and they would stop reminding me of the love of God for me. And so I felt like that God's love got me in, but I've got to keep myself in. It's not the gospel. The gospel is everything that he ever commands you, he will supply for you because he loves you. And Dane Ortland in his book, he says this, if you're a Christian, this is a quote, if you're a Christian, God made you so that he could love you. His embrace of you is the point of your life. We, and hear this, we grow in Christ no further than we enjoy his embrace and love for us. What does it mean to grow in godliness? It is not simply knowing facts. It is that those facts get to the heart and your heart swells with love for Jesus. That's how we grow. We cannot forget the cross. Many of you are shackled with a loss of joy and peace because you are dwelling in your past. You feel like your past has of shame and guilt is characterizing you and you cannot get past it. The cross says that's been paid for. You give it to him. Shame and guilt has been nailed to the cross. He loves you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And if he did not spare his only son, I've said it already, but if he didn't spare his only son, but gave him over for us all, how will he not also give you everything you need? That's love. That's love. So whenever you feel joyless, usually for me, if I'm joyless, it's characterized by sometimes maybe the rolling of the eyes. Have you ever done that? Yes, you have. Don't sit there just looking at me. The rolling of the eyes, the sighs, easy to frustration. If you feel a loss of peace, It means you felt fearful. You felt really anxious. Your dreams have been dashed or relationships just feel way too hard. The parenting struggle, which is a real one, feels so overwhelming you can barely breathe. You feel at a loss. Your marriage feels like I'm not sure it's going to make it. Finances feel so tight you feel like it's choking you. Those of you who are not married, you feel a sense of hopelessness that you never will be. You feel like you're wasting your life. Oh, dear friends. You might be tempted to say, if that's love, I don't know that I want it. If life is that hard, and that's what you're calling love, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I want a part of that love. 
How many of us, and you don't need to raise your hand, but just personally reflect, how many of us has allowed the sufferings, the pain, the joylessness, the difficulty to erode this sense of confidence in the love of God for us? And deep down, does he really love me? Is his love really that strong? Dane Ortland goes on to say this, and it's a quote that I think you can hang your hat on. When you're tempted to say that I don't know if my God loves me, Dane Ortland says you're looking at the wrong life. He says your life doesn't disprove God's love for you. His life proves it. Your suffering does not define you. His suffering does. And when you're tempted to look at all of your circumstances, you need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ who died in your place to let you know that when you are suffering involuntarily, you look to the fact that he suffered voluntarily in your place so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, no matter how hard it is for you to comprehend, that he loves you. He died for you. It's as real as this place right here. He loves you. Your suffering does not disprove his love. His suffering proves it. He loves you. And so I'm inviting you, as I think Paul is, to look behind you and to rehearse Calvary. I've heard it in the songs. And I want you to know it's not a Sunday-only rehearsal. It's what I've got to do moment by moment, day by day. I have to remember he loves me by looking at the cross. But I also have to remember that he doesn't, hasn't only gone behind me, but he goes before me. He goes before me. Because joy and peace are not only lost because I'm overwhelmed by my past. Joy and peace many times are lost because I'm terrified of what's to come. Do I get an amen? And we're terrified of what's to come because we don't know what's to come. All of us are control freaks. We would love to know, but deep down, I've said it so many times, if I would have known going into the past 15 years, before I went through it, I would have like thrown in the towel and have been like, sorry, peace out, not in this. God knows what we can handle. You and I do not need to know the future. And rest assured, you and I definitely don't need to control the future. Good night. We can't control our own lives, our own homes, let alone the universe, okay? We do not need any part of trying to control it. So where in the world, when joy and peace erode because we can't control what's in front of us, where do you get joy and peace? May the God of hope. What's hope? It's causing you to look future and to trust God right now with it. That's what hope is. What is hope? Hope is present confidence in God's future provision. So where do I get us to set our gaze on a God who has the future? It's in those first few words. May the God of hope. May the God of hope. He's saying we can have present confidence, joy and peace, because we trust God's future provision. We trust him. 
He goes before us. It's trusting forward. Trust in God for what is to come. You see it in Romans all over the place. Romans 8, 28. You might have this verse memorized. God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. All things. He's at work. He's got you. Romans 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Our God has all things under control. And nothing, absolutely nothing can thwart his purposes. He is what's called sovereign. Sovereign means he's in control. He's in control. But I don't know if you've seen this point. The point here is to trust God's providence because he goes before us. Why did I use the word providence? Obviously, it's not in Romans 15, 13. Why do I use the word providence? Because someone can be in control and still be really rude about it, right? They can be in control and you not want to be under their control. So to just say that God is sovereign is to say, yes, he's in control of all things, but providence means that his sovereignty is carried along by good, fatherly affection. Tender, wonderful purposes. John Piper says this in his book, Providence. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. He has fatherly care, wise rule, just rule. The adjectives we put in front of sovereignty turn it into providence. End quote. Paul tells us we can have hope in God not just because he is in control of all things, but he is a loving father in control of all things. He is tender with his mercies for you, his children, as he's in control of all things. That's the grid we have to have as you look at a suffering and a broken world that you can't control and you can't explain. God says, I still love you. I love you. Paul is trying to anchor our hope in something that's solid and firm. It doesn't shake from underneath us. And it is God's providence, his control of all things with his steadfast loving kindness. I remember one Thanksgiving, my youngest was, we call him Bear. His name is Justice, but we call him Bear. And my youngest at Thanksgiving decided that it was a brilliant idea that while we were watching NFL football, he would place the soccer ball right in front of the TV. And while we're watching it, he would get ready and then jump on the soccer ball. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried that. I don't know if you've ever thought about the ramifications of that. But I witnessed them right in front of me. He jumped. He landed. The ball went and his head went whack and hit the ground. And on Thanksgiving Day, we had to go to the hospital for a concussion because he thought that that was a great idea. I think we would be able to say that's not a good idea. Those of you who are really young in here, I just encourage you, please don't jump on a soccer ball, on a football, 
It's not a good idea. Instead, what would have been better? Hey, I'm great with you jumping, son. Just jump on the ground, you know? Let's just do that. The ground is really firm. It's really stable. It's not going to go out from underneath you. This is our hope. We set our hope on unstable things. Money. Career promotions. Some of us, we set our hope so heavy on our spouse to be our savior, we crush them. We set our hope on our kids to fulfill what we have regrets about. And we hurt them. We set our hope not only on the uncertainty of riches, but on the uncertainty of the praise of other people. I'm guilty. And it's just like jumping on a soccer ball and watching those things go right out from underneath us. And Paul says, when you set your hope on other things, your joy and peace, they erode. The gap gets wider between these promises and your experience. And so he says, set your hope on God who is sovereign and in control and is holding your future. I remember I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I lived there for two years. And when I was there, brand new marriage, brand new church, brand new school, brand new job. It's just the recipe for anxiety. And I was there and I was anxious. And I remember God in his kindness. I was reading through the Bible in Matthew chapter 6 just came to my reading, and I said, I just got to commit this to memory. And a part of Matthew chapter 6, if you remember the passage, is don't be anxious. That's the passage. I was like, okay, that's me, but I don't know how to do this. And Jesus is just like so kind to carry us along, and he says, hey, why don't you just look around you, and let's start with birds. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So just, just process that for a second. Birds prancing around on the ground, then all of a sudden, boom, their beak goes down in the ground, out comes a worm, they eat it, God says, I did that. I did that. And then he says, now that you think I did that, Aren't you of more value than the birds? Don't be anxious. Once again, he's communicating. I've got you. I've got you and I've got your future. That's why he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough trouble of its own. Trust me today. The holiest thing you can do is to just be faithful with what's on your plate right in front of you and to trust God with the outcomes. Part of your prayer today that my prayer has been for you is that maybe for the first time, all those things that are flooding you with anxiety, you would, just, you would just take it and you would say, oh God, I have tried to control this and hold this way too long. I just want to, in a Matthew 6 sense, I just want to say I trust you. I just give it to you. I'm tired of trying to control it all. I give it to you. You can trust him because he's gone before you and he goes ahead of you. But not only does he go ahead of you, he's right beside you. 
You do not walk this life journey alone. How do I know that from Romans 15, 13? Because Romans 15, 13 is a prayer. I don't know if you knew that. Paul is waxing eloquent about all this truth, and then, boom, he just breaks into prayer. May God, may you, the God of hope, fill these people with all joy and peace in believing. How does somebody who might be battling with anxiety, how does somebody who is sitting here as a teacher, all of a sudden he just breaks into prayer? Well, let me tell you this. Paul did not break into prayer because it was like, oh, I've got to obey a command to pray. Paul broke into prayer because he was desperate. He knew that he could not supply what the church needed. He was desperate. Paul didn't pray because he was hoping to gain acceptance. He prayed because he knew he was loved. Let me say it again. Sometimes when you hear sermons about, okay, I need to be a person of prayer, that's what you think. I've got to obey a command. If I do this, then maybe God will accept me. Paul is saying, I'm stopping to pray because I ain't got nowhere else to go. I'm desperate. I'm stopping to pray because I know I'm already accepted. I'm stopping to pray because I know my God loves me. I'm stopping to be in his presence. It's the communication that God is with you. This is what we've got to rehearse. God, you've gone before me and all my sins have been nailed to the cross. God, you go ahead of me and you have my future. And God, you're right here beside me. You're right here beside me. Prayer is less about the obligation and more about the opportunity. The analogy that comes to my mind is prayer is like eating. All of us like to eat. It's just how it rolls. And if I look at you and I say, hey, you need to eat, most of you would not be like, stop telling me what to do. So oppressive telling me to eat. You'd be like, yeah, I kind of agree. I'm hungry, you know. And what happens when you haven't eaten? Your body speaks to you, right? And almost inevitably, whenever I mention food during a sermon, it almost shuts everybody down. <laughs> it's like, okay, dude, you better be getting moving because now I feel it. And somebody is going to get growling going on in this room right now just because I'm talking about it. That's how it rolls. Your body growls when you're hungry, right? It lets you know I need to eat. The growls of the human heart are those experiences of discontentment, frustration, anxiety, fear. Whenever you feel those emotions, it is the growling of the human heart that says, you need spiritual food. You need to be in the presence of the living God who will supply all you need, and he's with you. It might seem crazy simple, but it is so deeply profound There's been so many times that I just stop and I pray, and I usually use the Lord's Prayer. I've had to actually make it a discipline, set an alarm on my phone to stop and pray in the middle of the day, because I was realizing I was praying in the mornings and sprinting all through my day, and then realizing on the back end, like, I barely thought about the Lord, and I'm a pastor. 
I had to stop and say, Father, you're in heaven. I am your child, and you are here. You're here. You're present. Make your name set apart in my heart. Dear friends, the God of the universe is here. Through the heat and loss of AC, through the sweat pouring down your face, in some senses, that's good. Because when you're in those kind of circumstances, that's when it's harder to focus and to remember the Lord is here. He's here. He genuinely is here. The God of all comfort is here. The one who satisfies the human heart is here. I'm not making it up. I'm not creating it. I'm not trying to say words to make you feel better. It is a reality. It's like what Elisha prayed when the servant was like, how are we going to win this battle? And Elisha was like, God, just open the man's eyes. And the whole mountainside is covered with angels and God's army. That's what I just pray that God does right now. He's here. He's here. And honestly, that's one of the most revolutionary things to your prayer life is if you just stop making it mechanical and make it relational. Your God is here. He loves you. And when you stop and pray, he is saying, I'm here and I'm for you and I love you. I've gone before you. I'm ahead of you. You can trust me with everything. But we will not move forward in progress until we have stillness. The Christian must be characterized by stillness. And especially in our busy world, we must be characterized by slowness of heart. Paul is saying, joy and peace abound. Hope rises when you realize God's right here with you. That's why he prays. And then to end it all, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. What do we know about the Holy Spirit? For all those who have trusted in Jesus, Romans 8 says, and the Spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in your mortal bodies. That Holy Spirit will, can give you joy and peace because he lives inside of you. So not only is God calling you to trust, to trust his steadfast love, to trust his providence, to trust his presence, but he's calling you to trust his supply. His supply. You will never be without what you need. He's inside of you. And that inside of you thing is not like a light switch. When you trust in Jesus, it's not like, bing, light switch on, joy's always there. I'm sorry if somebody told you that was how it was going to roll. It's not how it rolls. We're too up and down for that. The promise of supply is, don't let this sound irreverent, but it's, it's a lot like when I fill up my kid's kiddie pool. Whenever we have this little kiddie pool, you fill that beast up, you take a water hose, and you put it in the pool, right? But my kids don't do very good with waiting until the, the pool is filled. It's like got this much water, 
They've got bathing suits on, and they, you know, sometimes they like hurt themselves. Like, you know there's concrete underneath this beast, right? Or some, you know, it's not very soft under there. And they jump into this inch worth of water while I'm still filling it up. And so all this water starts squirting out of the pool, and I'm filling it up and filling it up. But here's what happens. Almost imperceptibly, the water keeps rising. No matter how much they're splashing, the water keeps rising. The fill keeps going. Now, me, I'm a little conscious of the water bill, so I'm like, hey, slow down here because we got... But God is not worried about running out of supply. He's not worried about running out of resources. He's constantly filling us up, no matter how much the distraction of our heart, no matter how much our sin keeps knocking the water out, he's constantly filling it up. But here's what happens. We're tempted to believe that God is not filling us with what we need. One of the most beautiful passages in all the scriptures is John chapter 7, which says, if you trust in him, you'll never thirst again. Because when you trust in him, it's like springs of water are shooting up out of the heart. And it says, in this he said of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is compared to a river all throughout the Bible. But here's the image. The image we have is many times of a dry riverbed. This is kind of the image we have of God's supply. That's how we feel. We face a barrier. It's really difficult. There's not a lot of water running. So then I've got to fix it myself. I just want to alleviate this horrible image and say, our God is a mighty rushing river. That's the next image. This is the image you need of our God. He is not without supply. The water is overflowing the banks. You will never face anything alone, and you will never face anything without the full, rushing, mighty waters of the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. That's why Paul can pray as he prays. May the Holy Spirit fill you. He's not dry. May he fill you with all joy and peace and believing. And so what he's calling us to right now is do you trust him? Dear friends, our trust goes up and down. The passage is acknowledging that. And it says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace by continuing to believe moment by moment. Let's bring this image in. I know he loves me, and so I can keep going. When you're fearful of the future, you bring this image in. I know he's going before me. He's got my future. Oh, wait, when I'm feeling lonely, oh, I know he's here with me. I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to be in his presence. And when you're tempted, like, I can't do this. Just know he has filled you with all the supply that you need to do what he's asked you to do. He loves you. So Paul is inviting you to trust. Trust his steadfast love, his providence, his presence, and his supply. And I pray the God of hope fills you. More and more often, the gap begins to close with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can abound in hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for drawing near to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that these words are truths that can cover a multitude of sins, can cover a multitude of struggles. Father, I pray that you would help us become more and more aware of your promises and of your presence. I pray that many of us would commit this verse to memory so that as we walk through everyday life, that God, you would just make us aware 
to use one of these images to preach the good news of Jesus to our hearts. And so, Father, right now, as we get a chance to sit still and reflect, I just pray that this reflection on the cross of Christ would comfort us and remind us that we are loved. Please, God, help us not to move on too quickly. But help us to honestly take our hearts to you in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.